Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, which is powered by Anastasio Law, a boutique zoning and real estate law firm located in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood of Philadelphia. First, I want to apologize. I want to apologize to all the good, hardworking, caring people here in this city, and especially our good young people here in Philadelphia. But I have to tell you this morning that I am forced by the stupid, ignorant, and dumb actions of a few that we will announce tomorrow actions that we will take that unfortunately will affect many here in our city. Hi folks, Vern Anastasio here and welcome to Philly Bill. As you know, Philadelphia and its neighborhoods are under construction, and they have been for years now. And while this may be good news for many, if you live next door to a construction site or buy a recently remodeled row home, you just might end up realizing that we're a crumbling city, due in large part to reckless redevelopers. On today's show of Philly Built, we talk to journalist Samantha Melamet from the Philadelphia Inquirer. And along with her colleague Dylan Purcell, she authored a multi-part series of articles entitled Crumbling City. It's a fascinating look at how Philadelphia is mismanaging its growth and crumbling before us. That's our topic today on Philly Bill. Samantha Melamed, welcome to Philly Bill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Samantha, you and colleague Dylan Purcell uh, authored a remarkable series at the Philadelphia Inquirer entitled The Crumbling City. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And really, it was a focus on how development in the city of Philadelphia is impacting all of us, uh, some of us more than others. And that's what we're going to talk about today. First, I'd like to start with um, two stories in your series uh, that focused on the communities of Point Breeze in Philadelphia and in Norris Square. You spoke to, I believe, a resident by the name of Ms. Menendez in Norris Square and focused on the Flamer family down in Point Breeze. Tell us about their stories and how by living adjacent to new development or redevelopment, their lives were turned upside down. So, I mean, I, I think this sort of starts with the history of Philadelphia row houses of being this um, incredibly um, affordable source of workforce housing that, um, you know, has been a source of really high home ownership in Philly. And for people like the Flamers, um, you know, they were able to buy a house for a few thousand dollars in Point Breeze and build a life there. And it was, you know, a source of intergenerational wealth. It was um, obviously a place to live and um, to raise their extended family. And it was um, a source of equity for emergencies, like when someone was arrested in their family and they needed to post bail. So just like all the different ways that homeownership creates security and middle-class life. And then in 2012, when or 2011, when Point Breeze started gentrifying um, and their block was undergoing this radical transformation, there was construction next door to their home. 
and their house collapsed. And, um, and they were just basically left with, um, with nothing, with less than nothing, really, because they also had the demolition bill from the city to deal with. <laughs> um, and at the same time, also, their son was in prison, was in jail facing trial for a murder that he uh, has maintained he's innocent of, and um, they couldn't afford a lawyer anymore. Um, so that's one story. Uh, you know, on the other side of town in North Square, um, which people might be familiar with near Kensington, um, it's been historically um, a center for uh, Puerto Rican, um, pe- you know, people who have uh, come here from Puerto Rico. And um, Ms. Mendez was, you know, also living on a block um, that had basically no houses. She was just sort of keeping it you know, keeping the block up, and she had fenced off the two houses next, the two vacant lots next to her house, and um, and then a developer comes in, tells her he's bought one of the lots, and suddenly she's noticing all these cracks in her home, and um, really has no recourse, and um, hiring a lawyer was totally uh, beyond reach, she said, so, um, you know, for, for these longtime residents um, of homes that were built built, you know, like a hundred years ago and were built to stand together, um, you know, this, this, uh, construction that comes in, well, it seems like a good thing for the community can end up, um, displacing them. Yeah. Some of these row homes are pretty darn old, over a hundred years old. So in one of the cases that you highlighted, um, a developer or an investor comes in and knocks down uh, a particular property that's adjacent to an occupied home. And then Although the code says that once you knock down a property, you sort of have to protect that party wall. The party wall is the wall that you and your row home neighbor share. You have to protect the exterior of that party wall so the elements, critters, and other things don't sort of uh, undermine the integrity of that wall and therefore undermining the integrity of your home that's the one left standing. In one particular case, a demo did happen. The investor did nothing to that particular wall. And it seemed like the homeowner that was left with the exposure had nowhere to turn. How was that possible? I mean, that, that's actually, I think, pretty common. It's something that I've seen a lot around Philadelphia. And there has been that requirement in place for well over a decade that you have to stucco that wall. But um, what Ellen I told me, that's the Philadelphia Department of Licenses and Inspections, um, which is supposed to be overseeing the stuff, is that they actually had not put in, like, really an enforcement component of that um, around that until pretty recently. So they said that what happened to the, to the woman who I profiled was that her situation predated that. So the city did issue a violation to her, to, to her neighbors, to... Um, to, to fix the wall, but that remains unpaid. Um, and, you know, unless the city takes them to court or she takes them to court, um, what is the remedy? And for her, I think it, it would probably, you know, would it be financially worth it to take them to court, maybe small claims court, um, you know, but um, I don't know. I tried to contact those, those uh, develop the, the property owner and they didn't respond to me. Right, because what are her options, you know, practically speaking? Uh, first of all, I think it's a joke that that fine was just a few hundred dollars. Is that right? Uh, for leaving the, the side wall, the party wall exposed? 
So the, I mean, the fines actually, I think it is a few hundred dollars, but I think that they are actually can be daily fines. Can be. Yeah. So, I mean, it could actually be very substantial amount of money. And if the city chose to do so, they could, you know, take, say, okay, well, it's $300 a day times it's been a year, you know, and say, we're going to put this lien on your property until you repair the wall. Um, But like, is anyone doing that? I don't know. But in practicality, it doesn't necessarily happen. Um, but for all practical purposes, for her, who, you know, the folks who are left with that exposure, they could have either, I suppose, hired an attorney to go after the folks who demoed the property next door, which is costly, especially when you're dealing with litigation, right? Because the retainer will be upwards of seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars. Or she could do the work herself, stucco the side of the of her home to protect it, and then seek a remedy in court, you know, uh, through small claims for the ten thousand dollars that it would cost her to to uh, to protect her home. Uh, none of it would be a quick and easy fix, and she would probably not be made whole for quite some time, if ever. And the other question I have is if you. Um if you're someone like her who's like filing a claim in small claims court and you can't get the other person to answer, I mean, like what, I mean, does that really lead anywhere? It, it uh, if it does, it takes forever uh, because then you have to file for special service. And if you, you know, and by the way, if that company declares bankruptcy, then she's completely out of luck for all intents and purposes. So the framer of Flamer family in Point Breeze their story was even more devastating because this family was in Point Breeze for generations. And uh, but for a reckless redeveloper next door, they'd still be there. But they're no longer in Grace Ferry, uh, Point Breeze, because of it. So um, tell us a little bit more about that one. I should say that the city didn't issue any violations against the neighboring property, and I did reach out to that developer, and they said that um, the construction had nothing to do with uh, the house collapsing. So, um, okay. you know, I mean, it's very difficult, as you know, to um, to identify liability in some of these cases when the house has already collapsed. Yeah, and especially if no one has hired an engineer uh, for an expert report to explain to a finder or a factor for anyone uh, whether or not the actions of uh, an investor demo or redevelopment impacted an older home that was attached. But, okay, so there's no evidence. Uh, but tell us the story and what I think would lead most people to believe that these people no longer live in Point Breeze because they're property collapsed as a result of an adjacent development. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what they told me is that um, Ms. Flamer, Olivia Flamer, had tried to leave for work that day, and she tried to open the door, and it wouldn't open. And, you know, they had to basically put their shoulder to the door and get it to open, and she left. And then, you know, her husband walked her to the bus stop, and he's uh, he's a retired trash collector. She worked for the city, and they just he just hears this, like, boom, and he comes back and sees his house, you know, sort of sort of collapsed and his grandson's asleep inside and his grandson woke up and saw a hole in the wall and said he jumped out the hole in the wall and was, was just, you know, frantic about whether his grandparents were, had survived. 
Um, and, you know, from then on, they just, they just never really had the financial wherewithal to recover. They were home, you know, some sort of homeless and that they were like couch surfing and they've been, you know, now renting a place and Olivia, um, uses a cane. She's a senior and she has to, um, get up these three flights of stairs to go into their, uh, rented little row house in Southwest Philly and sort of like a, a daily struggle for her. And, even when the when the article came out, she was like, I don't know where to get it. Um, you know, it used to be that everything was so easy. And, you know, I could just walk to whatever I wanted in Point Breeze, walk to the store. And now it's like, there's nothing around here. So, And there was work being done on the property adjacent to yeah, the home yeah. prior to the collapse. Yes. Yeah. The home next, the... The home next that was adjoining their row house that had shared the party wall was demolished and um, a new, like, pretty expensive structure, like a, I forget, like a three or four hundred thousand dollar row house was built there. And so they lost their property at sheriff sale in the end. Um, and a new, a new row house is also where their property used to be. And they revisited Point Breeze with you, did they not? Mm-hmm. Um as part of this series, mm-hmm. what you know, growing up in a Italian American culture where real estate is like a part of the family, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I know there are other communities like that mm-hmm. uh, where you spend generations accumulating real property. You even name them uh, after you know the, the house numbers. These aren't things one gets rid of easily or willy nilly. And if you sell, it's because of necessity, not for profit. Um, how did this impact her and her husband, uh, the Flamer family, when they went back uh, and, uh, and and saw their house gone? I mean, I, I think for them, it's just so tied up with the fact that they were not able to hire a lawyer that they really felt could handle their son's um criminal defense and they were at home with him they told me in that in that house when um his cousin um alan moman jr was was killed and um they weren't able to present that alibi um so for them i think that the house is a huge loss and it's hard for them to go back there and see you know like see how point breeze has changed i mean it's totally transformed and like there's so there's so many amenities there now and um for them to go back there and sort of see what they're missing out on is hard but I think the hardest thing for them is you know the fact that they sort of see this is tied up with um with what they view as their son's wrongful incarceration right and my takeaway was that they they seem to lament um a missing connection that home was a connection to their past to their history, to their to their ancestors, to their stake in Point Breeze as a community, and all of that was gone because yeah. this house was this house fell down. And they used to be like the people that everyone could go to. They used like they like family members would stay with them when they needed a place, and they like raised their grandson, um, you know. Or I think for a while their their um, their nephews were were staying there and. And now they don't have, they're not able to offer that and to, you know, sort of be that sort of central hub for their family. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think she was an elected 
committee person mm-hmm. in that neighborhood as an elected official. The people of that community went to the polls on an election day and, and elected her as their local committee person. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So definitely a, a pillar of the community who within, you know, one afternoon, one evening, um, lost their connection to the community. Yeah. And, I mean, Point Breeze has been such an such an epicenter now. I mean, it's like one-tenth of all building permits in Philly in the past decade were in Point Breeze. And so many, st- like, I forget what percentage of stop work orders, but it's it's like a disproportionate number of stop work orders in Point Breeze. Um, people there are, like, really really going through this transformation and, and sort of experiencing, you know, the ways that it, you know, displacement is not just like a financial thing. It can be like a very physical oh, sure. thing. According to um, one of the articles, you said a review of city records identified about 300 occupied households that the Department of License and Inspection have deemed unsafe or imminently dangerous during construction on a neighboring property. Yeah, that's right. That's 300 families. Yeah, it's about 50 homes a year. That's fascinating. And what is even more fascinating is that the folks who are having to deal with this seem to be, proportionately speaking, folks of color uh, in neighborhoods that are now gentrifying. Talk about that. I mean, so what we found is that about 80% of those damaged homes were in formerly redlined neighborhoods, so areas where the federal government had deemed them to be, um, a quote, hazardous uh, to lenders. Um, And so these are areas that were disinvested, that where property was cheap for a long time, and were... um, you know, like pe- people with pretty moderate working class incomes could could live, and so um, when you add together this the the sort of general danger of being next to an unsafe property of any kind that could collapse because it's maybe vacant and has been deteriorating, or um, because there's chaotic construction, um, we found that um, people of color are many times more likely than um, people in majority white neighborhoods to uh, be at risk of some, some like, outside, um, outside disaster um, making their home unsafe. Yeah. What's the solution here? Because Philadelphia is booming. I mean, this is, you know, what we talk about all the time here on this program, Philly Built, is the, the great revival of the city of Philadelphia <clears throat> and how wonderful it can be how investors and developers are uh, and CDCs are breathing new life into vacant land, vacant homes, vacant buildings. Uh, but it's having a real impact on the people who live right next door. So how do we address some of this stuff? So I think the solutions fall into a couple of different buckets. Um, the first one is the building code. I think a lot of people would say that the building code really doesn't contemplate, you know, new construction coming up against century-old row houses and, and what that does. So, like, should you allow excavation next to a rubblestone foundation where you're going to be underpinning it to dig out a basement? You know, some people say you shouldn't allow that. Should you be allowed um, to knock down a part of a shared wall structure 
and then not do anything to not just stucco, but also structurally reinforce that structure, like with star bolts or, you know, something like that to make sure like the walls are secured. Um, some people say that that would be an important fix. Um, another bucket is accountability. Um, so what can we do to hold developers accountable? I mean, there's a, a residential construction lemon law um, that is being floated right now in the state legislature that's been been brought up for a couple of years uh, by uh, Representative Joe Hohenstein, and I don't think it's um, ever gotten super far, but I think it would be a good start. There's a developer license um, or like a house flipper license. Those are things that have been proposed that have never gone gone through um and um you could also uh require developers to carry insurance on neighboring properties um that could be a way to uh improve some of this um and then lastly um you could uh staff i better or <laughs> you know make sure that the laws because the city has done a really good job of improving the legislation around this, but on paper, it, on paper, yeah, on paper, is it being enforced? I mean, each each um, inspector has like over a thousand permits, or about a thousand permits that they're responsible for. Uh, inspectors tell me that they have like they start the day and they have twenty five inspections that they're supposed to do, and it's like I can't do twenty five inspections, right? And then you have to write a stop work order. I don't have time for that, right? And. It's my understanding that notice is now required, right? What the city of Philadelphia City Council has now uh, is now requiring folks who are building to give adjacent property owners proper notice of what they're doing. Is that right? You have to give notice. You have to um, do a structural survey of of how the work will impact the adjoining property, and you have to develop a monitoring plan. So that's definitely big improvements, but again, it's. It's how it's that enforced. And it's probably, it's not. I mean, we, I mean, I could tell you that as a practitioner, uh, we don't see it enforced. But all of those things that the city has codified, um, getting an engineer, putting together a plan, sharing it with the neighbors before anything, you know, before you, you put a shovel into the ground, is stuff that, um, you know, legal counsel can do for, for people as a preemptive strike by preemptively, if you know someone is going to be building or developing or, or uh, you know, redeveloping a, a parcel, I would think that's the time to get legal counsel because, you know, for maybe five billable hours, you can get an agreement kicked out uh, with the developer or the contractor so that you're protected, that you're added on as an additionally insured, and that you have a plan and in writing from the developer as to how this thing is going to go from beginning to end. Because if you don't do it before it happens, it sounds like doing it after is just a, you know, ton, you know, a lot more expensive and a lot more risky. I guess my question is, is there anything that the city could do to um, sort of mandate that process or like get that process going so that the you know you don't have like homeowners who really don't who've never hired a lawyer who don't know the first thing about it and who now you know have to know to do what you're what you're talking about which which makes total sense to me could there be a public policy uh, that's enforceable uh, and enforced uh, to ins- to protect folks who decide to stay uh, in the midst of construction all around them 
And I think um, that's something for council to take up. That scenario, these scenarios that we've been talking about typically impact older Philadelphians, folks who've been in the communities for, you know, their whole lives. But there's another story uh, that played out in your series, Crumbling City, Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, that it seemed to impact younger people, the fo- the first time home buyer uh, in places like Norris Square or you know, other neighborhoods, that um, these are older homes that have been uh, purchased by investors, um, improved, at least to the eye, and then sold for a handsome profit to young buyers in their 20s and their 30s, typically. Um, and then when they get into the property, with a certificate of occupancy, they learn that it's a money pit, right? Talk, talk to us about that. So I talked to this group of, um, this group of home buyers in, um, I guess what you would call, I guess it's Kensington, um, and they had all bought properties from the same flipper um, who had it dug out the basement to create a deeper livable basement and, you know, bedrooms in the basement and had rehabbed the, the houses. But, you know, they started realizing there were all these issues. There were leaks. There were floods in the basement. There was electrical wiring that they discovered wasn't correct. There were issues with their um, HVAC and... Um, when they when they hired a lawyer um, because the houses were under you know warranty but the the work wasn't happening um, what, what they discovered was that there are so many systems of inspection and oversight that are supposed to be in place and every single one of those had failed so um, the electrical work number one you're supposed to have a licensed electrician and a, and a private electrical inspector. The work wasn't done by a licensed electrician. It was done somehow by a subcontractor. And the, the electrical inspector was someone who had had numerous uh, violations from the city um, and yet was allowed to continue doing inspections. So let's hold up for a moment. So mm-hmm. the, electri- the electrician, mm-hmm. the, 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 the dude who's handling the electric in this home, has to produce a plan, an electrical plan, right? That then is given to the city, right? And the city stamps that plan and they go off and they do the electric and then inspectors come in and inspect that work to make sure that what was done is according to the building code and matches the plan that was approved and then it's written off and it's good, right? Then uh, permits are issued, right? But what you're telling me is the electrician who actually did the work wasn't even allowed to work in the city of Philadelphia. Not as an electrician. <laughs> right, not as an electrician. So so the guy who, the front man, the front electrician, who was, in fact, uh, permitted to do the work in the city of Philadelphia and submit his electrical plan, he then brings in a subcontractor who's not permitted to do the work. And it's that sub that actually completes the job. I'm not totally sure whether um, the arrangement was subcontracting, whether um, the subcontractor asked the other electrician to pull the permit for him. You know, I didn't get uh, um, congruent answers from the two of them. Um, All I know is that um, is that there is, 
you know, sort of a business of buying and selling permits in Philadelphia. And, you know, I can't say for sure that that's what happened here. All I know is that the person whose name was on the permit is not the person who did the work. Right. And the person who was inspecting to make the sure, make sure that the work was done correctly, he's got his own bunch of problems, right? He's been flagged a whole bunch of times for not doing it, not doing the job correctly. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I didn't realize until I started working on this that Philadelphia um, had a lot, had outsourced electrical inspections to private inspection agencies. And, um, you know, there was, after the Market Street collapse, um, that was something that was flagged by um, the task force because... Um, because there was a concern that that, you know, is obviously like ripe for um, corruption when you have uh, a private contractor hiring their own private inspector. Um, but that was never changed. And so um, here you have someone who has been flagged repeatedly for, um, for overlooking work that's not up to code and um, approved the work in these homes. And when you say the market street collapse, just for the, uh, our listeners... You're talking about the collapse of the Salvation Army building uh, on West Market Street several years ago that resulted in the death of several folks. Yeah, that's right. And it was a direct result of construction. Yeah, it was It was uh, the result of demolition next door. Um, and the, the party wall was about three or four stories tall. And it was knocked over onto the one-story Salvation Army building. And for the record, the LNI inspector who approved all of the work ended up dying by suicide. Yeah. Um, so a terrible story all around. Mm-hmm. Um, but practices seem to continue, seem to live on. If any, if nothing else, uh, these sort of practices of, uh, of either a lack of oversight or asking the uh, asking the the wolf to guard the hen house, um, at the end of the day, it's the people who live in those homes or next to those homes that are suffering. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the, um, you know, with these homes, they're supposed to have a special inspector who's a licensed engineer to oversee the underpinning that was going on when they were digging out the basements. And, you know, again, I mean, that was the person that was contracted by the, you know, by the home builder to do the oversight. And so you have the same problem. And I don't know for sure who filled out the paperwork that had the seal and stamp of the that licensed engineer, but um, but his name was spelled wrong. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, I, I think the whole idea of asking builders to police themselves is asinine, quite frankly, because everybody knows that if you're given the opportunity, unfortunately, more folks than not will cut corners because cutting corners helps your bottom line, right? So I know you brought this stuff to L&I, to the, uh, I guess, the upper management, I suppose. What do they have to say for themselves? Yeah, I mean, what what someone said to me is like, at at least you could have, um, you know, if you're going to have private agencies, fine, but don't let the actual developer choose the agency. (laughs) It's It's absurd. (laughs) What does LNI have to say about this? Um, you know, LNI says that um, that they are doing, you know, the best they can in, in 
in challenging circumstances. You know, they, they say that they are really staffing up, that they have hired a lot more um, inspectors and in training and that that will address, you know, a lot of the staffing issues. Um, and, you know, I think that the city generally is expresses optimism that uh, that some of the legislation that's been passed will will resolve some of this. But, I mean, I have not been able to get um, the commissioner of LNI to actually sit down with me for an interview or to make anyone available for an interview. I've only been able to get um, staffers, supervisors, inspectors um, to speak with me, you know, and, of course, they are not allowed to do so, so they're doing it um, off the record. But, you know, they're they're describing a, a situation that, of an agency that is just in disarray. And goes to another piece of uh, what, what I thought was pretty shocking in your piece was that there was an inspection that needed to be done and an envelope was left on, on site and in the envelope was a permit. And it was placed there by the inspector, apparently, right? So what I was told was that this is a city inspector told me that um, that he went on site to to a job and saw an envelope that had the name of the privately contracted electrical inspector on it, and the envelope um, had a, a final a final inspection sticker for electrical work that had only been roughed in; it hadn't been done finally. So, you know, he his conclusion was: I can only assume that mon- there was you know a stack of money in that envelope. And the uh, private electrical inspector took the money out and put in that final inspection sticker. Right. And L&I, you know, if you've lived in this town long enough, you'd know the history of L&I. Guys, there's inspectors who have gone to jail. I mean, the opportunities for cash to end up in folks' back pockets so a job can continue is not an uncommon practice. Um, and, and we're not talking myth or lore. We're talking fact. So with a $44 million budget and a collection of $60 million in fines annually, right? That's about $100 million at their disposal. How is it that L&I can't get their act together and get the staffing that they need to manage this growth? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think... I think it, it is challenging to get people who have the training they need to do this work. Um, and, you know, it was one of those scandals, the plumbing inspector scandal. I mean, this is going back really before my time in Philly, but um, maybe, I don't know if you, if you remember that or not, but, you know, a bunch of inspectors went to jail for um, soliciting bribes, and that was when they stopped doing plumbing inspectors, and they added um, plumbing inspections to the building inspectors. And then you think about all the other things that keep getting added to L&I, like they have to do nuisance bars. They were apparently down at the uh, stadium citing people for um, bootleg Eagles merchandise or Phillies merchandise, whatever that was. (laughs) Um, So... They have so much on their plate. And I think that is why, um, going back to the Market Street collapse, uh, another recommendation of the task force was that there should be a separate board of buildings and, you know, building safety, and then that could be separated from L&I. Because they also have, like, a a pretty strong... um, There's such a strong development bias in the city. And I think, you know, we all have, like, 
lived through those hard years for Philly and are really excited to see all the development that's happening. Um, and so there is a sense of like not wanting to get in the way of that. And I think that, um, you know, and especially it's like really hard to go after big, to go up against, you know, a really big developer or a big construction company. That's right. What Ellen and I, Ellen and I decides to do instead is go after the little guy who puts on a, a rear roof deck on his home and drags him through 18 months of litigation and thousands of dollars worth of fines. And the guy's a school teacher on the 800 block of league. But to go after a larger developer in Point Breeze takes a lot of time, takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of lawyers. They decide not to touch those guys. They're also the developers who cut checks to the politicians to keep sure that they uh, stay in office. There is an LNI committee on council. Uh, is are there is there any talks uh, about separating the process of building and redeveloping properties from the other LNI? you know, enforcement work that needs to get done? I don't think that is really um, an active topic of discussion anymore. Um, I think... Because L&I does everything. Mm -hmm. I just heard a story where Live Casino down there in South Philadelphia decided for whatever event to have searchlights with the live logo hitting the sky. Members of L&I actually came down and told the casino that they had to turn off the lights um, or get some sort of permit. I've never heard of a permit for that. but uh, So you have L&I chasing after searchlights as properties crumble in our neighborhoods. So do you think we should start moving towards uh, legislative remedies uh, or infrastructure you know, the actual infrastructure of L&I making some changes with a new administration coming in. Is that, um, is that an opportunity? I think so. I mean, I've, I've heard that um, Mayor-elect Parker is pretty um, tuned into this and, and that her team has been meeting with folks about some of the issues around L&I. So I think there is an opportunity to um, really, really think hard about what's, what is or isn't working and what what could be changed. Um, I think, you know, I mean, L&I is still not, you know, their, their budget that they spend is still less than what, what they bring in. They're a revenue generating department and they don't spend as much as they bring in. Um, and I mean, compare that to, I think, I think the entire expenditures of L&I was less than the police department spent last year just on um, paying officers who were out uninjured injured on duty that's (laughs) shocking yeah that's shocking yeah so there's a a lot more that could be done well we certainly hope there is and we we do thank you for putting this series together um i do hope mayor-elect parker has read it and i hope her folks read it uh so that um they can begin to provide all of us a roadmap for a safer uh, and more responsible development in our our neighborhood uh, samantha melamed thank you again so much um, your series, The Crumbling City, um, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, was quite an eye-opener, and I hope folks go on Google uh, or get back to, uh, to, to the Inquirer site and look it up because uh, it's quite a read. And thank you again for all your work. Thank you. Bye now. And that's it for today, folks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Philly Built. Remember, if you have any questions or 
issues you need to look into with Philly Zoning, please visit us at phillyzoning.com, powered by Anastasio Law. Until next time, I'm Vern Anastasio. Thanks for joining us. Yeah.